0: morning, everyone. Now, uh, whoever's been praying for a white Christmas, please stop. We want it to be warm, okay? I've been freezing. I didn't expect to crack out the long shirt, but here we are. Uh, we, we're continuing just a short series in the lead up to Christmas uh, where we're looking at Luke chapter 1. Next week, uh, as we hit our Christmas services, we'll be looking at Luke 2, the birth of Jesus. It's going to be fantastic. I'd love to see you all join us there, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. Uh, it's going to be a wonderful time celebrating together. Uh, but today we're looking at the birth of John the Baptist, the, the one who prepares the way for the Lord. And, and I don't know about you, but I've always found John the Baptist a little bit hard. What, what's, why is John included in, in the Bible? Shouldn't we just jump straight to Jesus? But Every single gospel, all four of them, have John the Baptist, which tells you something is important. Don't just skip over him and go straight to Jesus. So I'm really thankful to have the opportunity to jump in now and look at what happened surrounding the birth of John. And I do think it's quite uh, astonishing and fantastic. So how about I pray for us, and then we'll dig into this short little narrative. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you have spoken to us already today. And we pray now that As I preach and proclaim your word, your word would be working in all of our hearts, deepening our knowledge of you and so deepening our love and conviction around you. Father, would we live as servants of you, knowing the forgiveness of sins we have. And thank you that Christmas time is the time where you brought about your amazing saving purposes for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was uh, much, much younger, like 18, 19, 20, uh, a young adult, fresh out of school, uh, serving in churches, uh, I really struggled with Christmas. Uh, I found Christmas quite difficult because you have what the world has made Christmas to be. Buying presents, making you love stuff and things, uh, you know, very consumeristic. Or you got the... Actually, Christmas is about family, and that's wonderful and good, and family's so great. But guys, aren't you missing that? Christmas is about Jesus. And, and, I, and I just didn't know how to handle Christmas as a young fella. What do we do? Like, the world thinks it's one thing. The Bible says it's another. Everyone's just so caught up in what the world calls Christmas. And so I made the kind of young, arrogant mistake of just being like, Christmas doesn't matter. I'm just going to pretend like it's not a thing. Sure, I'll turn up. But I'm not going to celebrate it all that much. But the problem was I I really, I threw the baby out with the bathwater. I missed just how wonderful Christmas really is. And now as I've grown, and and particularly since having children, uh, I've actually kind of swung the other way, right? So over here I was like, all that stuff is bad, chuck it all out. Now I'm like, actually, I really love giving presents to my kids, It's such a great joy to be able to give them a gift and and see their excitement, even if it's just like, you know, a toy that they'll play with for two minutes and cost me a dollar. They love it, and I love seeing them enjoy that. And spending time with family, that's such a great joy now. I really enjoy those parts of Christmas. But it still draws my attention away from the truths and the life-changing reality of Christmas, So what can I do to keep the gospel heart of Christmas as the gospel heart of Christmas? I don't know if you've felt that tension before. You know, uh, a Christmas service just flies by in an hour on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve, and then you're just straight back into cleaning the house, getting it ready. Hopefully you've done all your present shopping by then, uh, because you're not going to be doing it on Christmas Day. But all the stress of that, all the cooking, the preparations getting everyone together so you can take a nice Christmas photo, so you can have a nice Christmas meal. It just, it draws our attention out so that we forget the life-changing realities of Christmas. Have you felt that? I know I feel that. And so how do we keep the gospel at the heart of Christmas? That's what I want to explore today. How do we keep the gospel heart of Christmas As we celebrate Christmas and and do all these other wonderful, joyful things, how do we let the truths of Christmas shape our lives? How do we celebrate Christmas well? As we dig into these verses around the birth of John the Baptist, I think we find our answer. Our answer is here, we just have to dig a little bit to find it and so... uh, Please join me as, as we do a bit of digging and investigating and looking deeply at God's Word here. We're going to confront ourselves, but we're also going to see the great joy that comes at Christmas. So how about we start digging into these verses? Uh, the first thing that I want us to see in this passage, which I think really stands out as you read through it a couple of times, is just the faithfulness of God. God is extremely faithful. All through the Bible, God is faithful. Here we see it just heightened. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. Now, uh, we didn't read the first part of Zechariah's story, so let me just recap it in case you can't remember it. Zechariah, he's a priest. He's serving in the temple, and an angel appears to him in the temple and says, Zechariah, your elderly barren wife will give birth to a son. Zechariah doesn't believe the angel, and so the angel says, because you haven't believed the word of the Lord, you will not be able to speak until he's born, and he immediately becomes mute. Nine or so months later, John is born. Elderly Baron Elizabeth has given birth to a healthy, happy baby boy. God is faithful to Zechariah, because God faithfully keeps his promises, God faithfully keeps his promises. But there's another promise here, a a more ancient promise, that God is faithfully keeping. And it's easy for us to miss it. But I don't want us to miss it. That's why we had Genesis 3 read. Keep your fingers in Luke chapter 1 and come back to Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall of humanity. Adam and Eve's sin... God finds them and punishes them, but he also punishes the serpent, the the one who fooled and tricked Adam and Eve into disobeying God and rebelling. And as God punishes the serpent, look at what he says in verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, that is the serpent and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. We have a promise one day, someone will come who will crush the serpent's head. He is a serpent crusher. That is God's promise in Genesis 15. And in Luke chapter 1, we see that promise being fulfilled. We see the, the um, expectation that this serpent crusher is right about to come. He's right around the corner. Look at verses 67-71 with me to see, as Zechariah is filled with the Spirit and enabled to speak and prophesy God's Word, he tells us that the serpent crusher is here. So Luke chapter 1, verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people to redeem them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through the holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. God's salvation is coming. In fact, God's salvation is here. It's right on their doorstep. God has come to redeem his people. Salvation from God's enemies, from God's people's enemies, from those who hate God's people. Salvation from the serpent. The serpent crusher is here. We know him as the Messiah, the Christ. He is here. The Messiah isn't John, this little boy. It's his cousin Jesus, who's already uh, in Mary's womb. But John prepares for his arrival. It's been thousands of years since God made that promise in Genesis 3, but God is faithful. God is keeping his promise, just like he kept his promise to Zechariah. God is a faithful promise keeper. And look at the beautiful picture that Zechariah paints of God's promise being fulfilled in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet on the path of peace. The coming Messiah is the dawning of new light. It floods the darkness so there's no more shadows. The shadow of death will be gone so that we're able to walk the path of peace with our God. This is beautiful language to describe the coming of the Messiah. This is beautiful language to describe Christmas. Christmas is the dawning of of light, the Messiah coming to his people. But I don't know if you've walked in a room that's already lit and you turn on another light and you can't tell the difference. If we don't walk into a dark room before we turn on the light, we don't notice what happens when a light turns on. And so if we... Come to Christmas, not considering the darkness that would be in this world without Christmas. We will miss the meaning of Christmas. We will miss how it shapes and changes our world, how it makes our lives radically different. And so we need to explore the darkness. And that's where I want to go next. I want to explore the darkness with you. And then we'll see how the light shines into that darkness. So let's keep going. Zechariah prophesies about salvation, about rescue from the enemy. And when Zechariah speaks to his son John in that song, he turns to John and says, verse 76, And you, my child, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High. And the prophet of the Most High, what's he going to do? The very next line, You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. John will prepare us for the coming Messiah, for the dawning light. He prepares us for it. How? How? The very next verse, verse 77, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sin. John's job is to teach people what God's salvation is, to prepare them to understand what God's salvation actually is. And John isn't to go, all right guys, God's salvation is here, it's liberation from the oppressive Romans. So take up your swords and pitchforks, get your shields, get ready. The Messiah will come and lead you into battle. It's not freedom from oppression. It's not political freedom. It is the forgiveness of sin. Because sin is the real enemy. That's my second point today. Sin is the real enemy that we need salvation from. Sin is the real enemy that we need rescue from. Sin is the real enemy that the Messiah has come to defeat. Sin. Sin has been the enemy since Genesis 3 which we've read and it has absolutely devastated our world ever since. Every act of hatred and violence and oppression finds its root in sin. Sin has broken God's good creation so that it doesn't work as it was designed. It's twisted and so Every disease, every disaster finds its root in sin. Sin destroys what God has made good. Even worse, sin has shattered our relationship with God. In the garden before Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were able to walk in the cool of the afternoon with God. And you see that in Genesis 3, God's walking in the afternoon again, coming to walk with his children, Adam and Eve, but they're hiding from him. That relationship has been broken, fundamentally broken. And so Adam and Eve, they're not allowed in the garden anymore. They're kicked out. They can't be in God's special place, in God's presence anymore. They can't have access to the tree of life anymore. Their relationship has broken. Sin breaks our relationship with God. There's an image the Bible uses, and I want to share it with you, but I'm going to change it up a little bit. Imagine I'm preparing for my wedding anniversary with Jess. Uh, you, you know, uh, Jess is at work, so I'm, I'm getting everything ready at home because I don't work except for Sundays, obviously. So uh, I've called up a, a fancy restaurant and I've booked a table for us. In fact, I've booked out the whole restaurant. It's just going to be one table in the middle. It's going to be super fancy, super romantic. And I've... Um, gotten dressed up. I've gone out and bought new clothes because all my clothes are old and smelly. So I've I've really made myself look as well as best as I can. I've put in a lot of effort but what else I've done is I've bought Jess a dress. I bought her this beautiful gown for her to wear on our night out. We've got someone coming to watch the kids. It's just going to be the two of us. I get this really fancy, expensive, wonderful dress for her. She gets home from work and You know, chills out for a bit because work's crazy. And then I give her the dress and say, Honey, we're going to go out tonight for our anniversary. Put this on. You'll look amazing. And she does. She looks stunning. She looks absolutely marvellous, elegant, radiant, beautiful. But before we go out to the restaurant, before we can do that together, instead what she does is she takes that dress that I've bought her, goes out onto the street wearing that beautiful dress and prostitutes herself Imagine that betrayal. Goes and sleeps with other men with the gift that I've given her. That's how the Bible speaks about sin. That's how the Bible speaks about sin in Ezekiel 16, in Hosea 1. Our sin is adultery against God. God has given us every beautiful, good gift... And we use those things and turn on Him and worship other gods. We turn on Him and worship the things that He's created. It is offensive to Him. It is betrayal. That is what our sin has done. There are some obvious things that we turn away from God to worship. Career, family, education, leisure, riches. There's a bunch of things... There are some more insidious and hidden things. The self-righteousness that says, well, I'm not a sinner like that. I haven't betrayed God. I'm not that bad. It's the pride that says, yeah, the world is like that, but I've been rescued, so I'm much better now. That is still sin that is a betrayal of your God. It is to worship yourself and your own goodness. And all this betrayal, all this sin, what it has achieved in our lives, the prize that we win for it is condemnation. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What you have earned for your sin is death, is hell, is condemnation. That's what our betrayal has led to. Sin is the single greatest problem our world faces today. It's the greatest problem our world faced when Zechariah was singing his song. It's the greatest problem our world has ever faced. Sin is the real enemy. That is the darkness. That is what we have to comprehend. That is the world we will live in without Christmas. And it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not yet a follower of Jesus, whether you're exploring him or have been a Christian for 30, 40, 50 years, we all need to confront our sin continually. We need to confess that until we have received our new body of glory, sin is still part of who we are. And we need to come before God, confronting our sin, personal, private confession before God, is incredibly important. Make a habit every day of confessing your sin before God and seeking forgiveness. Make a habit of it every day. But also, finding trusted brothers and sisters that you can confess with is incredibly important. God has given us one another to love and care for and hold accountable for our sin Remember, there is always forgiveness, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. There is forgiveness. If you confront your sin and bring it before God, there is forgiveness. Absolutely, every time. But we need to confess. And so this is one of the things I hope and pray for our growth groups. I hope and pray that our growth groups are places where you can confess your sin in a safe environment with people who love you and care for you, and want the best for you, and want you to grow, and will point you to Jesus and the forgiveness we have in Him, and will hold you accountable for your sin. I want our growth groups to be a place where each and every week we come and confess. Now, growth group leaders, let me speak to you for a second. We need to lead our groups in that. We need to be the people who confess first and set a culture of it. I know I struggle with that. I find it hard to do it in, in my group, but I have to lead my group like that because that's what I want our groups to be like, places where we confess the reality of sin in our life and come before God seeking forgiveness. Now, let me speak to those of us who are sitting in the circle having sin confessed and we're sitting there. It is not our job to condemn. It is not our job to say, you have sinned before God, you are going to hell. No, no, our job is to remind them of Jesus. To be gentle and firm. Jesus loves you and he forgives you. And we're going to work hard to make sure that you don't fall into that pattern of sin again. What do we need to do? Do I need to call you up every night? Do I, do I need to um, take your phone and put software on? Do it, what do I need to do to help you fight this sin? That is our job when people confess to us. Be gentle, bring the gospel firm. Hold them accountable. The reality of sin has deeply broken our world and broken our relationship with God and we need to keep fronting up to it before God. Sin has made our world dark. It has cast its shadow of death over everything. But remember Zechariah's song. Light is dawning. Christmas is the dawning of that light where it illuminates everything. All the darkness is sent away. There'll be no more shadows because the Messiah has come. What is God's solution? Verse 77, John has come to teach about salvation, the forgiveness of sins. That is the heart of Christmas. That is why Christmas is so good. In fact, that's the heart of the Christian faith. If you're here exploring Jesus, that's what we really want you to know Being a Christian is about being someone who knows they're a sinner, yet is forgiven. That is the Christian faith. That is God's solution. Jesus, soon to be born, will grow up to be a man who doesn't spend all his time healing people, although he could. Doesn't spend all his time just preaching, be better, although he could. He dies a young man on a cross, for the forgiveness of sin. His death wins our forgiveness. This is my final point. The forgiveness of sin is our salvation. Without forgiveness we are doomed. But Christmas means forgiveness. Christmas means we can be forgiven. Our salvation isn't being a better person. It's not being more spiritual. It's not being true to who you are and who you feel you are. No, no. Our forgiveness, our salvation is forgiveness from a man who died on the cross for us. It is not up to us. It is up to Jesus, who has done it all. And all this is achieved by the tender mercy of our God, who loves us. Remember, John says this. I mean, Zechariah. Zechariah says this. All of this is won by the tender mercy of our God, verse 78. If you want to keep the gospel at the heart of Christmas, if you want to know that you're keeping the balance of things at Christmas, yes, um, there's great joy in giving presents, yes, I love having my family over and all the stress that comes along with that, but Christmas is about Jesus. How are you going to keep that? Confront your sin and remember the forgiveness that you have in Jesus. That is how you keep the gospel at the center of Christmas, by Uh, flooding yourself with the knowledge of this truth. You are forgiven. But now we're called to live that gospel-shaped life. You see it there. Zechariah prophesies about why we are saved. Look with me at verse uh, 74. God has sent His salvation. He's kept His holy promises. 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, that is sin, rescued by our forgiveness, and to enable us to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. What are we rescued for? To serve our God. To serve the One who would send His one and only Son to die for us. To serve the One who loves us. That is what we're rescued for. In, in stories, in movies, in books, or whatever, this is often called a life debt. You, know, uh, you save my life, I dedicate my life to you, I'm now your servant, I'll do whatever you need, I'll give up my life for you. That's the concept. And I was looking for real-life examples of this, and it turns out there's not actually a lot, or at least not many recorded, but I did find one, and this was just really fascinating. This is a real-life example of a life debt from the 6th century in Ireland. So a man named Libran tells his story. He says this. While living in my own country, Ireland, I murdered a certain man, and afterwards, as guilty of murdering him, I was confined in prison. Makes sense. Killed a man, sent to prison. But a certain very wealthy blood relation came to my aid and promptly loosing me from my prison chains, rescued me from the death to which I was condemned. When I was released, I bound myself by oath to serve that friend all the days of my life. Libran, a man who is condemned to death, is rescued by a friend, and he devotes himself to his friend for the rest of his life. I owe my life to you, so my life is now yours. Use it as you wish. And he does so joyfully, not under compulsion. He's not forced to. He does it joyfully with thanksgiving. That is the same with us. Our life has been rescued. We give it over joyfully with thanksgiving. We're not compelled, we give it up freely. But look again at 74 and 75. We are rescued from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and in righteousness, before him all our days. There are three wonderful things in there that that I think are just... You can serve someone without these three things and you would be miserable. But God is so good and gracious to us that he gives us these three gifts. First, we serve him... Without fear. We could serve God without yet being forgiven of our sins and would constantly live under the fear of condemnation. But that is not what we've been called to. God has rescued us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We serve him without fear. We're not worried that he will one day turn on us, that one day he will stop forgiving us. He has promised, and he'll faithfully keep his promise, that our sin has been wiped away. We serve without fear. Secondly, we serve in holiness. What does that mean? It means we're set apart for a God. We serve him not as just some random Joe Schmo. We serve him as one of his people set apart, made holy for him. There's the idea in the New Testament of the priesthood of all believers. Everyone who's forgiven by Jesus is now a priest. We are set apart for God to serve Him. We are God's chosen people. We belong to our God. And finally, we serve Him in righteousness. God has made it so that as we serve Him, we are now able to serve Him in the way that He wants us to. We can serve Him as holy, righteous people. We're enabled to live the life he has called us to live. God is the one who enables our service. God is the one who calls us in. God is the one who has made us his people. And we can serve him in that. That is wonderful news. And so then serve God. Give your life in service to your saviour. Give your life over to Him, every moment, every breath, every second, to God. God has forgiven me. He has forgiven you. He calls you into His service. Don't you want to return your... Don't you want to return and give thanks to Him with your life? Just a couple of weeks ago, we shared our vision for church, uh, Vision 2030. Vision 2030. There was a lot of big things in there. That is a big vision for our church. I don't know about you, but when we were first talking about it, putting it together, it felt overwhelming. This is a big vision. How can we do that? Well, we can only do that by God working. But God works through us to bring these things about. And so it's a big vision that requires all of us to commit to serving God to bring it to happen. Would you join us here at MCC, those who call this place home, would you join us in striving to achieve that vision? And that means we all need to help. Not help, commit ourselves to. Help kind of means you step in and you know, scrub the floors once they, a everyone. No, no, we're to commit ourselves to this vision, to seeing it come about that means that some of us will need to give 5, 10, 15 plus hours every week in service of God's people here at NCC. It might mean you don't just help on a job, but you commit to doing it. I commit myself to welcoming and integrating people here. I commit myself to serving us by making our bands better, by playing the best I can and working together better. I commit myself to... To our kids' church ministry. So I'm there discipling kids every single week. I commit myself. I commit. What are we going to commit ourselves to? We need everyone here to be willing to use your gifts that God has given you to achieve our vision. We need you to step up as leaders. We need you to love your neighbours and bring the gospel into their lives. And so we all need to consider how we've organised our lives. Have we organised our lives to make it easier or harder to serve our God? Have we organised our lives to make it easier or harder for us to commit to the vision of church here? Have we organised our lives so it's easier or harder for us to grow in relationships with people who don't know Jesus so that we might speak the Gospel into their lives? How have we organised our lives Is your life so full that you just find it hard to be at growth group every week or church every week or whatever it is? Is your life so full that you just don't have time for friendships with people who don't know Jesus? Your friendships with your church friends, that's easy. You can just go and relax. But building new friendships, that's that's too much. I don't have the time or energy or capacity for that. If you feel that, to some extent, then maybe something needs to change. How can you commit yourself to serving God when your life is so full that you can't? And yes, there's, there's all the other responsibilities we need to be faithful to, but maybe those responsibilities can change. Does work demand too much of your time? Maybe you need to set boundaries with your boss, or maybe you need to look for a different job so that you can love and commit to your family, so that you can love and commit to the body of believers here, so you can love and commit to those people who don't yet know Jesus, who live just next door? Do your kids' extracurriculars demand so much of your time that you just can't be at church every Sunday? Something might need to change. Maybe there's a different sport they could do, or maybe you could change instruments so so that tutoring isn't on Sunday morning, but it's Saturday or Maybe that Friday afternoon soccer club isn't the best for your kids because they won't be able to come to youth group. Do you need to shape and change the things in your life so that you can commit to serving your God in whatever capacity that might look like? Yes, obviously I've got a vested interest in seeing our vision achieved and I hope that members here have that same interest. But you can serve God in so many ways. Imagine if there were many people here who only had to work three or four days a week and had extra days to devote themselves to the service of the Lord. A day to just meet up with other young mums in the area and love them and build relationships with them so that you might speak the truth of the gospel to them. So that you might bring them along to playgroup where they will be gospeled and meet other Christians. Imagine if you only had to work three days a week and so you could spend two of them working hard to love and care for and develop our growth group leaders, meeting up with them, or meeting up with people here who are struggling and need help. What would it look like for you to have the space in your life to serve God deeply? And what a great joy it would be to devote more and more and more of your time in service of your King and Saviour. Let me finish with this. In the midst of all the distractions around Christmas and all the great joys, all those wonderful things, be prepared with the gospel in mind. Christmas is about the forgiveness of sin, light dawning on our dark world. Be prepared with thanksgiving. Be prepared to serve your God. That is how we keep the gospel at the center of Christmas. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son into this world. Thank you that he comes, not with no message or context, but John has come beforehand to tell us that he's here for the forgiveness of sins. Father, thank you that you didn't leave our world in darkness, but you have brought new light, new life through your son Jesus. Father, this Christmas, especially in this coming week in the lead up, as the busyness heightens... Help us to keep first and foremost in our mind that we are forgiven by your son Jesus and Christmas is the dawning of that new light. Amen. We'll be singing our last two songs about Jesus and what he has done for us. If you're new and not familiar with the songs, feel free to just listen to the lyrics.